0: Today's teaching is from Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. We are taking an extended look at this passage. If you've been here since the beginning of the year, you know we've read that text every week. Um, I hope you're not tired of it yet. Uh, this is the season of Epiphany, uh, where we ask the question, uh, along with the church across the ages and across the world, how do we live in light of Jesus's coming? We anticipate this coming, we wait for it in Advent, we celebrate it at Christmas, and Epiphany is, okay, now how do we live in light of, of Jesus coming? If Jesus really is who he claims to be, what does that mean for how our lives go, uh, on a daily basis? And so, Jesus reads this famous, um, well-known, uh, uh prophecy, uh, this section from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, this passage uh, called the the year of the Lord's favor. Um, We know he's worshiping with his family and friends in his hometown at this point. Um, uh, And and what you get in in the prophecy that Jesus reads is uh, several crucial aspects of God's promised activity in the world are are laid out for us. Um, And then Jesus sits down. And his sermon is really short. He comments on it a little later, but his sermon is basically today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So... Whatever has been been said in the few words that he read of the prophet, we know Jesus is taking them as the scope of his ministry. This is what I have come to do. This is what I'm going to be about. This is my, we've been saying these are Jesus's resolutions. This is his statement of intent for the scope of his ministry. What has Jesus come for? Great question. And it's partially answered, like the scope of it is laid out in this passage. So, uh, the next couple of weeks, we're going to take each one of these phrases and look at them and say, okay, what is being you know, described in this phrase of Jesus' ministry and how would we step in and, and live into that? So today, we're going to take the first of the outward expressions of his ministry, which is uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. That's where we are today to proclaim good news to the poor. We've taken several weeks to get there, and it's so tempting for me to want to go back and do a bunch of summary work, but I'm not going to. Those uh, messages are on uh, on the website, on the podcast. Go back and check them out because we do get here from a place, and the place we've, we've come through is very important. Last week in particular, we said that everything we're about to hear of what Jesus' outward ministry is, is is done because he is full of the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, we went back and tracked how the gospel writer Luke will not let us miss that Jesus' birth and life and early life and, and, and the beginning of his public ministry is defined by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Something happened last week. And I'll just confess, like, as, as a pastor, you never know. Like, I, I'll think that I've got the best sermon I've ever given, and I think that it's gone the best it's ever given, and then I'll give an invitation or uh, an opportunity to respond at the end of the message, and they'll be literally crickets, and that's fine. You're fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. But, but it'll be shocking. I'm like, oh, I thought like there would be such a bigger response to that. And then last week, I felt like I was up on two wheels. I felt like I finished the sermon so late, and then my kids started puking, and I was exhausted. I was like, ah, this is going to be the worst ever. And then I get through and, and basically like, just simply got out of the way and was like, hey, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, come forward. And all of you came, it felt like. Everybody was filling the front last week. I know not everyone really, but like um, it was such a powerful morning of inviting the Holy Spirit and remembering that all that we're longing for most essentially in life, we cannot produce out of our own resources. The fruit of the kingdom of God, love and joy and forgiveness and mercy and salvation, it's not just a product of human effort. And so to see this front area filled with people hands out saying, come Holy Spirit, fill me with so powerful. It was so powerful. We're just going to keep coming back to that over and over again. We can't do this on our own. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to say two really quick things about that and then go on with the sermon. Um, I don't know everything that happened up here. Uh, So many of the stories, like we weren't talking to every person. Why did you come down? What's going on in your life? How are things? People just had their hands open and we came by and laid a hand on the shoulder and prayed for them. One couple in particular came down, they didn't say anything about what was going on in their life, the people who came up and prayed for them didn't ask any details, uh, but one of them was telling me they were praying for this couple, and she just got this word of like, I, I, I want to encourage you that I think financial breakthrough is coming in your life, which is like, wow, that's kind of like specific, and I'm like, what, what do we think about that, and but she just took, she took the risk and she prayed it. And the couple, when she began to pray about financial breakthrough, they began to weep. And it's like, oh gosh, people are crying. We must have hit a nerve here. And it's sort of like, could you say that to all of us and it might hit a nerve? Maybe. But... Um, Whatever. They're, they're crying and, like, uh, and sort of that's it. Oh, that struck a nerve. That's a beautiful thing. The Spirit was ministering through one person who took the risk to say something I'm not sure about. And the person was, the, the couple was encouraged by just the prayer. So, anyway, later in the week, someone else comes um, and they, want, they, they feel like they've been encouraged to give an anonymous gift to someone in our church and they entrust it to the leadership. It ends up getting directed to this couple. And they had no idea. Just like the, 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 the beauty of the church family at work here. And the amount that was given to this couple was $1,000 exactly. And the uh, the woman uh, from the couple was weeping and saying, that is the exact amount of money that we needed uh, for this. We're, we're, mo- we're in the process of a move. You know, it's like a million dollars to move in New York City. Like the, the broker's fee and all, all the stuff. Like it's like, it's insane. Like don't walk by. Like it's so expensive. The rent is too high. All right, we're not going to get into that. But <laughs> I just love that no human being could orchestrate that on their own. We called out for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit ministered in little, small risk ways of saying, I wanna encourage you in this, even though I'm not 100% sure that this is gonna resonate, but I'm just gonna say it, oh my gosh, it did resonate, that's good, that could be enough, we cried, that's enough, right? But then God comes and provides that breakthrough that very week through someone else who didn't know their story, like, we need help and we have it, folks. That is the good news. We we need help and we have it. And I just want you to know, we are about this as a church. We wanna be a church filled with the Holy Spirit. Our our three big pillars of mission is we wanna be a church filled with the presence of God. We wanna be a church being formed to be more like Christ. We wanna be a church that expresses the love of Jesus in tangible ways. Presence, formation, and love. We can't have the presence of God without the Holy Spirit. Two heroes of the faith... (laughs) are coming to our church in February, um, and they're gonna be leading a a, a couple of events. They're gonna preach here on Sunday, then they're gonna lead an event February 12th on uh, empowering us to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, to walk in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. John and Eleanor Mumford, uh, they're international leaders in the in the Vineyard movement. Um, they're coming February ninth. Do not miss February ninth that Sunday. And then I want to invite all of you. Um, you can go on our website and RSVP. There's an equipping event that Wednesday, February twelfth, where they're going to te- like help empower and. Uh, they travel with John Wimber, who helped spark a revival in America and in England um, back in the 80s. Uh, the Anglican church has, has been wildly transformed in pockets by, by the ministry of John Wimber. They traveled with him. Um, their sons, do, their, their kids do music. You may have listened to their kids' music. Um, so whatever it takes to get you there, just come, okay? That's my announcement. I was supposed to give an announcement, and that's, that's it. So... When we get to proclaim good news to the poor, we have to remember, right, it comes after the Spirit of the Lord is on me, the Spirit has anointed me, right? It's not by our strength, it's not sustained by our ongoing inspiration, it's, it's the Spirit of God within us. The gospel writer will not let us forget that Israel's God, our God, is truly other, Truly different, set apart. That's what when we sing holy in the worship songs, the word holy means set apart. God is different than us in a substantial way. And one of the ways He's substantially different than us is that He is one and three. He is Father. He is Son. He is Holy Spirit. So the ministry of Jesus, the gospel writer won't let us miss this. The ministry of Jesus is directed by the Father. Jesus says, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing, what the Father directs me to do. And then the gospel writer won't let us miss that Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't take anything away from Jesus whatsoever, but it shows us the type of God we are dealing with. Uh, one God who is also somehow a community of love. So, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Salvation, freedom, healing, mercy, love, and favor. These are Jesus's revolutions. These are what we see him doing in the rest of the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, the Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what we see his followers doing in the book of Acts. This is what we see them doing in, in the context around the letters that are written as the Jesus communities grow up in cities across the Roman Empire. It is these very things, these resolutions of Jesus. Later he's going to tell his disciples, baptize people into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let them be immersed in the Trinity life, and then let them them walk in the way of Jesus, and this is the way of Jesus, so that's why we're looking at it. Proclaim good news to the poor. So my hope is in the next few minutes, we can understand what this one short phrase of intent means. And then we have to grapple a little bit with the people in the text reaction to it, and hopefully that will shed some light on our reaction, maybe give us some, some clues as to how we can go, go forward. So we're going to look at the substance and the reaction to this, uh, to this passage here. So first, the substance. What does Jesus mean that he has come to proclaim good news? What is the good news? And then secondly, what does it mean that he has come to proclaim this good news to the poor? All right? So... You may be very familiar with hearing this, 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 this next bit of information, but the translation of the Greek word here is euang, uh, euangelizo, which is uh, where we get the word evangelized. Does that make everyone feel warm and fuzzy when I say evangelize? Evangelical, you all feeling good there? Everyone loved that word, love that idea? We're all tracking? Great, I'll just keep going. Um, right? That word maybe gives us connotations that can initially trip us up. But the heart of what Jesus is saying is there is an announcement being made, there is news being shared, and that news has wonderful implications when you, when you come to understand that news. Good news is being shared, and it has tremendous implications. So we're just gonna get down into the grains for just a second, right? Good news, good news is not exactly Uh, there is a possibility that something good might happen. Sometimes when Christians share the good news, they share there is a, it's more like they're sharing a possibility of something good might happen if you do these things. If you do X, Y, and Z, some good result might come into your life, might come into the world. But that's not exactly what is happening here. To share the good news is actually to to make an announcement that something has already happened, a new reality has broken in. If you wanna pull it into like more human terms to get our imagination going in the right direction, if at a certain point in history, You heard the news, the Allies have won the war. That means something has been accomplished, something has been done, and now a new reality has broken in. Now, there was, we've mentioned this before, there was a a period of time from, from, uh, from, the the allies winning the war in World War II till the very end of all the fighting, right? There was a period of time. So the news broke in, but the full implications of that news didn't come to bear in the world until a little while later. That's part of kind of how the gospel works as well. The... Uh, another piece of news. The couple has gotten married, right? They've written in soap on their car, just married. That means a thing has happened, has been accomplished in, in, in space and time and in their lives that has implications. A new reality has broken. They weren't something. They shared words of promise and covenant, and now they are something different. And that means a new family has begun news cancer has gone into remission right that is a new reality breaking in right the gospel when we say the gospel is good news it's good news like that something has been accomplished that has now changed the the face of reality and the implications are wonderful and and they're beginning to sweep into the world in a bunch of different ways so Good news. I said we're going to get grainy for a second. Euangelion, good news, the gospel. It's where we get the English word gospel, euangelion, the same same root. The gospel is being announced. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit has anointed me to proclaim euangelion, to proclaim good news, gospel, glad tidings. Something has happened. And then a moment later, Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your hearing." So, the gospel, I know we're getting so simple here. The gospel is being proclaimed. What is the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing Jesus is the gospel. This is part of the astonishing, scandalizing thing that Jesus, the gospel is not just a set of ideas about God, okay? The gospel is not just a prayer that you can say to end up in the right place after you die. The gospel is a person. So to experience the gospel is to experience a person, is to experience a relationship. Jesus is the gospel. Now, I I know many of you maybe already track with, with that. Some of you gave me like cross eyes for a second. So I just wanna say this a bunch of different ways so hopefully it will be as clear as possible. The good news is a person. The good news is Jesus. The good news is what Jesus has come to do, right? The good news is God has gotten involved in our world In a deeply personal way, he has come to us. The good news is God has gotten involved in our world in a deeply personal way, he has come to us. The good news is salvation, freedom, healing, mercy, love, and favor are available to us. Salvation, healing, freedom, love, and favor are available to us, how? Through relationship With this person who's speaking through relationship with this person, Jesus. The good news is, Jesus is showing us what God's kingdom looks like in the world. By what he says, by what he does, by his life, death, and resurrection and sending his spirit to us, he's showing us what God's kingdom looks like in the world. So when I say Jesus is the gospel, he is bringing the announcement, the accomplishment, the victory, the reality of the kingdom of God into the world to share it, but not sharing it like here's a peace for you, here's a peace for you. Sharing it like here's an embrace for you. You're in the family, we're walking together. It's relational. So Jesus is saying, He begins his ministry in Mark. Hey, reorient your whole life. A new reality is breaking into the world. It's the kingdom of God in a way you've never seen it before. Repent, the kingdom is at hand, is is, is specifically what he says. Reorient your whole life. And he says, This is what the kingdom is like. And he tells a bunch of stories the Sermon on the Mount. This is what the kingdom of life, the parables. It's like a mustard seed that grows into a tree that gives shade for people. It's like this man who had two sons and they ran away and blah, blah, blah. All the stories are saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. But then Jesus is also demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like, you can't see, you can see. You don't have enough to eat, you have enough to eat. You're excluded from temple worship, you're brought into temple worship. You have leprosy, you're healed and cleansed. You've been laying by this pool crippled for all of your life, get up and walk. The kingdom in in description and the kingdom in action, that's what Jesus is doing and it is news, it is good news breaking in and it is a person. The gospel, one more way, when we come to the full account of Jesus' life is that God has won a victory over sin and hell and death. Very intense. Maybe this is the way that you first heard it as a kid and it was like blew your hair back and like, that's weird. What does that mean? What's hell? Oh my goodness. But that somehow, in a substantial way, Jesus has won a victory over sin and death and separation from him. So I just wanna say that. I think many of you already know that, but sometimes in our world, when you hear someone say, I'm going to share the gospel with someone, What they mean is I'm going to share with someone that God loves them, and if they they will trust in Jesus, they can be forgiven of their sin and go to heaven when they die. That is good. That is true. That is deeply connected in the heart of the gospel, but that is incomplete. Because that's essentially saying there's an op- gospel is an opportunity for you to respond. And if you do, then good things might happen. But gospel is news that has happened, that has broken into the world. Whether you believe it or not, it is accomplished. It is, as Jesus said on the cross, finished. Now, if you align the reality of your life in union with Christ relationally to that reality, that begins to shape and define your very reality, your sphere of life and relationship in the world. But it's a little bit different. Like, That other thing is more like laying out the plan of salvation, like here's a way you can get in. The gospel is news that has happened. If you believe it or don't believe it, it has still happened. The plan of salvation or believing the gospel is kind of like the DTR with you and God. Where you say, yes, I see this is good news. I trust this good news. I want in on this good news. This good news is a person. I'm beginning relationship with this person. So we now tread right up to one of the fun things that I bet you were hoping we would mention today, which is a big problem people have with the Christian faith. And that is essentially this exclusivity claim at the heart of it. How on earth can you possibly say Jesus is the only way? So let's look at that for a second, very exciting. First of all, and I don't mean this, I just mean it exactly in the most neutral possible way. Christians were not the first to say that. Jesus was the first. He hints at it right here when he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But then he says it very explicitly later on when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is one of those passages that blows up people's good teacher guru theory about Jesus. Like, he's one of the many greats in the world history. He said a lot of good things. He was very interesting. Let's have him as a good teacher, right? C.S. Lewis said he has not left that option open to us. Because if you pay attention to the words he says, he's saying, I'm God, I've come to show you what God's reign looks like in the world. I've come to invite you into God's family. I've come to forgive you of your sins. I've come to embrace you in relationship and and make you one with me forever. And it's not just like love your enemies. Isn't that a nice idea? Did you notice I'm wearing sandals and carrying lambs? He's saying I'm God. So he's not just a good teacher or a guru. He's either God or he's crazy Right, You've heard that paradigm, like he's either a liar, he knows he's not God and he's intentionally deceiving, or he's mad and he thinks he's God but he's not and he's off his rocker, or he really is saying, no, 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 in the unique way that's never happened in all of history and will never happen again, God has broken into the world in a person. The way the New Testament summarizes it is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. Somehow, Father, Son, Holy Spirit represented to us in the person Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So, Jesus is saying the nature of the world, even the nature of the world's deepest problems, and the nature of God are not first philosophical, first, they are relational. The repair the world needs is not first a a reorientation of ideas, but a rekindling of relationship. That is central to understanding the message of the gospel. So, people will say things like a lot of world religions have similar philosophies, similar moral teaching. You see the same things showing up in all of these different things. Why can't we just say, we've all got a piece of the pie, right? You've heard the illustration, like the elephant, the blind guys and the elephant. it's, it's, like, a, it's like a big trunk. Oh, it's like a skinny tail with the whiskers on the end. Oh, it's like a thing that, ble- people are, you've not heard this illustration, okay. So there's a thing about blind guys encountering an elephant and each of them describes a part of it, but none of them have the whole, and people are like, that's how we do religion. Got it? Cool. Basically, people will say, it is arrogant to say that you have found the only way. And maybe that's true if the only way is about having the right ideas or finding a set of steps. But if it's relational, it's not like you can say the only way to be married to Allison is to marry Allison. (laughs) The only way to come into covenant relationship with Jesus is to come into covenant relationship with Jesus. It's not like there's some other way up the other side of the mountain. So, Let me say this, Christians should be able to say that any religion, or almost any religion basically, might have good things to offer, might have many correct ideas about about life, about how to treat people, about how to have more peace, about how to stay flexible. But what Jesus is saying is God is repairing and healing the world and our lives through relationship. And there is a narrowness to relationship. To know someone is to know them. It is to come into a place of intimacy. There is a narrowness to relationship. To have a deep friendship, you have to spend time with a person. (laughs) To, to, To live in covenant union with someone, you have to spend time with that person. It's not merely ideas or merely philosophy or merely commandments. So there is a real appearance of humility. We live in a pluralistic world in a pluralistic time. We ha- All of our neighbors think and believe different things and we should love and care for them and be amazing neighbors and, 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 and be the most loving people. <laughs> there is an appearance of humility in saying that we can't know for sure and so all religion, religious beliefs may be true, but if you actually sort of get underneath that just a little bit, there's a real arrogance there <laughs> because essentially that's the way you stay in control. You say, I'll take this bit from here, I'll take this bit from here, but I'm essentially the curator. I'm essentially the arbitrator. Life is not being revealed to me. I am surveying my options and taking what I want. We take the parts we like, the parts we're comfortable with. We pay lip service to a variety of beliefs, all having truth, but what we actually do is hollow them out. (laughs) We sort of make these different world religions not mean anything by saying they can all mean the same thing or they can all be true, right? We're hollowing them out and we're thinking we're doing it in the name of, 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 of humility or, or, or relativism or whatever. Actually, I think honest disagreement is more loving. Real conversation about the substance of what we're talking about may be more the way forward than just sort of a like, I'm not really gonna get into it, they're probably all true, cool. Cool for you, cool for me. Cool for you, cool for me, elephants. I'll just say it this one more way. Our our relativism puts us in the place of God with the authority to decide who can and can't stay, even when we're dressed in a cloak of acceptance. We're still the arbitrators. Now, say this as well. (laughs) Christians of all people should be the most radically loving to our neighbors of other faiths, to those who have no faith at all. But not because we believe all faiths are equally true. Actually, that's more arrogant. <laughs> We love because we believe that a relational God is at the center of the world. This God has made people in his image. There is a sanctity and a beauty and a a, a spark, a magic, if you will, in every single human person, no matter where they began or what they believe or what their skin color is or their socioeconomic status. And we should be moving towards them in love because of what we do believe. Not because we're, we're just gonna pay lip service to understanding what they believe. No, we're moving towards them no matter what in absolute embrace the way God in the gospel has moved to us as the other and said, I don't care that you are my enemy. I want you to be family. The gospel of Jesus is the only faith where God comes in person to us and lives and dies and resurrects to offer us a new kind of life and salvation and union with him forever. There isn't another one like it. And I'll just say this, because this is something I think about. If God's plan involves the brutality of the cross, of Jesus, he suffers and dies this horrific death And yet, that's merely one of several possible options. Then I think we have a truly cruel and flippant God on our hands. If we are taking what we've we've said, that God the Father would send God the Son, He would come into history and be immersed in our story and live this way and show us the kingdom and then be tortured and die to bring salvation And yet there's another way that it could have happened. Doesn't that seem flippant and cruel to you? To me, part of the exclusivity is built into the actual story. Because we're not just like arrange the mental furniture of your mind. We're saying, know this person. Know this person. For some of us, God has said, I want you to meet my son. And we say, do you have anyone else up there? God has come to offer us relationship. It is at the heart of our world, the heart of our experience. We know it intuitively. It is a covenant relationship. It begins and is sustained by grace. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes it possible. No one at all is excluded from the invitation to respond to this news. And right, we get tripped up of like, well, what about the person who lives uh, you know, way off in the middle of the forest somewhere and has never heard this message whatsoever? And basically what I see us doing is like, I've come to know God as loving and kind and merciful and revealing his grace and, and goodness and salvation to me, but I have no idea what he's like when he's on vacation in the forest. He may be very unkind to those people, so I can't trust him until I know how he is on vacation in the forest. Let me tell you this. God is able to make his message known to the people who have not known it in the forest. And one of those, uh, or or wherever in the world, I'm I'm, I'm using that as an exaggeration, this idea that like, what about the people who've never heard? Well, some of the answer to that prayer may be for you to go and say it. But another is that God is powerful to reveal himself to people in grace and mercy. So don't you worry about God not being gracious enough as an excuse for why you won't believe now. He's great on vacation. So, just after the service today, we're gonna have Intro to Trinity Grace where we state our beliefs as a church and people ask questions, and I'll just tell you what we say in that meeting as a summary, like the elevator summary of the gospel. It's this. The gospel is the good news that God himself, the creator has come to rescue us from sin and renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Spirit. God himself has come to rescue us from sin and to renew the world through Jesus (laughs) On our behalf to establish a kingdom through his people in the power of his spirit. So it's relational and it is energized by the very life of God in our very life in the most intimate union of relationship possible. The kingdom of God moves along relational lines. The gospel is a person. You access it through relationship. All right. How we doing? (laughs) That Point one took longer than I thought. We're going to hurry now. Everyone relax. So in the passage, Jesus reads from the prophet. He says, proclaim good news to the poor. So let's hit that second part really quick. All through the scriptures, all through the scriptures, God shows a deep care and love for the poor. God gives attention and even priority to the poor over and over and over again. When God gets frustrated with his people, Israel in the Old Testament, or with his church in the New Testament, very often one of the most substantial reasons he gets frustrated with his people is they have ignored or forgotten the poor. They have just turned inward and focused on their own needs. We see examples of this over and over and over again. And we also see that often it is the materially poor who are the most receptive to the gospel because they know intuitively and through their experience that the world is broken and needs repair. And they're ready to to say, I need that. They're ready to access that reality. They're humble enough to admit that they need it and desperate enough to ask for help. So... God shows priority to the poor. You see it over and over again in the scriptures. So Jesus says, I'm coming to proclaim good news to the poor. That's in there. That's a part of it. But we know from the full account of scripture that, that Jesus is not saying God only loves those who are materially, materially poor or God won't give you salvation until you get to a certain low income level. That's not what, we're, that's not what Jesus is saying, of course, it's essentially saying there's something inherent in the nature of salvation that requires humility, that requires an admission of need, and maybe the poor all the time live closer to the reality of that admission of need than those of us who have barns aplenty, or however you want to say it. We have enough, and we can take care of ourselves, and, and we have medicine for our illness and investments for our future. And so, like, do we need God in a material? a material way, and something in the essence of how the gospel works is that you have to confess that you understand your need, understand your brokenness, and need this relational repair that God is offering through the person of Jesus. So the scriptures say the the primary thing that has broken the world and broken our lives is sin. Sin, at its essence, is a substitution for God. We try to live as our own gods. We try to make some other aim or ambition our God, right? You make sex or money or power or something else. You put that on the throne of your life. It is the thing that demands your attention, demands your affection, right? You want to get at what your real God is, it's the thing that you can't say no to. Right, whatever that is, that thing that you just can't say no to, right? That's that's the sin, That's the substitution for God. One of the ways we say it at Trinity Grace over and over again is: sin is when we try to meet the deepest needs of our life out of our own resources, and to give that up is an, is, a, is a humiliating, a humbling admission. We have to become, as the Gospel of Luke writer says, poor in spirit willing to admit our our need. We have to admit that our need is beyond our own resources, right? You see someone in the throes of addiction or in the middle of anxiety, and they're like, I'll do anything to get better, and you're sort of close to the desperation, right? Whatever it takes, I'm powerless over this. I need something more than me to step in, and that is where salvation begins, this relational process of God swooping into our lives. We have to accept the invitation for relationship with the God who is more powerful than us, and this means admitting our own poverty. Some of you are like, tears in your eyes, and you're like, I'm so there. Some of you are like, not sure. I took a trip to uh, uh, the Tamil, Tamil Nadu uh, region of India after the tsunami hit. Uh, Gee, it was t- almost 20 years ago now. And uh, we visited, it uh, was a trip I was uh, getting to lead with Allison. Um, starting to fall in love with her. It's very magical in many ways. Um, that's my wife, by the way. Um, and uh, we visited, we took a team of college students. We visited several orphanages. We went through this hospital with, for, uh, set up for people with leprosy. Um, we lived in this village with these, these kids for our time there. And um, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Right, we saw, it was, we saw some of the most powerful expressions of worship and the love of God and kindness that I've ever seen. I saw more joy on that trip than I'd ever encountered in my life up to that point. I had these indelible images of worshiping with these believing kids on the lawn of this orphanage, and we're all dancing around, so awkward and wonderful, and, and I just, and I, and I thought like right this happened. This story is repeated every single time, right? The person from, from the West or the person who has enough goes into the place of immense poverty and they think they have something to bring and every time they come back and they show us their slideshow and they're like, it wasn't them who was changed, it was me. And what are we learning, right? They live in the simple desperation of, here I had this need and God is meeting this need and it is so profound and it is so joyful and there's none of the extra nonsense or I didn't get to watch my Netflix show. It's just like, ah. We're dancing on the lawn in joy in the presence of God. One of the most powerful pictures of worship in my life with those who are teaching me what it looks like to be poor in spirit Because they hadn't known anything else. I'll say this, God loves to pour out love on those who don't have anything and those who know their need, who can simply receive. And here's the thing, no matter how wealthy and secure you are, you have to become like that as well and you have to take up their concerns. That's the charge of us as the church. In Park Slope, in this wealthy neighborhood with many of you having great retirement plans and plenty of money and enough to eat and you're just thinking about when is he gonna be done so I can go to a nice brunch place. We have to become poor in spirit and we have to take up the concerns of the materially poor. It is part of the ministry and call of the gospel. And I wanna say this, we have so much room to grow in this as a church, and I'm sitting in the pew hearing this word myself, not preaching at you like with my finger wagging. We went through, we've talked about this so much, we went through tremendously difficult years in 27, 20, 2017 and 2018. We sustained traumatic wounding. When you're wounded, it's so natural to turn inward and take care of yourself, And we did that for a time, but one of the things that happened in that two years of of agony and dealing with real pain and the shift of our church and and all the stuff we went through, the grief and all of it, is that we lost a little piece of our mission because we were too turned inward. And I wanna tell you, a prophetic calling to our church is to remember that we are called to turn outward to our city, outward to our neighbor, to be about proclaiming good news to the poor. That is our calling as a church and we're gonna stumble towards it and we're gonna fail and we're not doing it well enough but it is absolutely our calling to give radically generous, to give away our security, to give away our privilege and our place and our position to move to the poor and to embrace them because that is what Jesus has done for us. So, amen let's not just be inspired let's remember we can't sustain it on our own we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit and then we have to look on the website don't walk by is coming up let's go check it out there's a service directory right we have a mercy and justice working group going on Jackie will you raise your hand Hey, Jackie, Jackie's one of our deacons for justice. They're leading this group. She's teaching a course at 9 a.m. on Sundays of how we can help without doing more damage, how we can give away and steward privilege and, and move towards the poor. Come and learn, let our hearts be shaped so that our hands and feet know what to do. We have upcoming need drives that are gonna be, we're gonna be announcing in our church. Will you dr- dig deep and give generously with us? I was so unbelievably proud of our church at the end of last year. We found out, and I'm not going to get into all of it, we found out that through those really two painful, painful years of 2017 and 2018, God did something in our church that he'd never done before, which is he sent a couple of people who were tremendously high-capacity givers. I'm talking about like $250,000 from one person, capacity givers, and they carried our church so that we didn't feel some of the immense... Uh, body blows of those times of grief. And they cared, and, and we found out the, those two people were leaving our church in December. We're like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna budget for next year? And we, we, we sent a, a message out to our members and you guys responded astonishingly. And we finished higher last year than we ever have. We're giving away more money this year than we ever have and it is your generosity, but we are just getting started. We're just getting started. Yeah, woo. Woo. <laughs> Our shared outward practice in epiphany is justice and mercy to serve our neighbors. Who has God put in your life whose needs you can meet? Who will you seek to show the love of Jesus to? Who will you share in ministering the gospel to? It is the ministry of Jesus, and so it is our ministry. It is the life of Jesus, and so it is our life. We are so out of time. And yet we just have to hit I'm sorry to say, the reaction of the crowd. And I'm just going to fly through this. You've never heard anyone talk so fast, okay? We've talked about the substance. Now quickly see the reaction. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to recovery of sight to the blind, set the oppressed feet, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm not really going to be the micro-machine man the whole time. Salvation. Freedom, healing, mercy, love, and, 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 and favor. Jesus says this, then he sits down and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and guess what? At the beginning, they like his sermon. Feels great. Verse 22, all spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? They love it, and so Jesus knows they haven't gotten it. So he goes on. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and, and you will tell me, do you do in your hometown what you've heard we have heard you did in Capernaum? Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many wit- widows in Israels in, in elijah 's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and there were many in israel Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only name in the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That is a tough ending to a talk. (laughs) Why do they get so mad? Basically, Jesus begins with this famous passage that Israel knew was for them, the year of the Lord's favor. No matter how bad things get, God's made promises all the way back to Abraham and God's gonna make it right no matter how bad it gets. And now we've had all these empires occupying and dominating and delaying the promise and it never seems like it's gonna happen. But now Jesus has stood up in his hometown and he said, this is happening. God is on the move. God is active. God is doing this. Salvation, healing, mercy, freedom. You are in, you are in. That's what they're hearing. God's gonna lift you up and they certainly must have thought he's gonna kick Rome out of here. And I'm gonna do it. And they're like, that's amazing. Aren't you Joseph's son? Like, we love this idea. Are you really gonna do it? People are like, yes, let's get this done. We get the blessing. God is sorting us out. God is healing us. God is providing for us. God is saving us. God is giving us favor. We are in. Rome's out. But Jesus says, you're missing something. Even back in the old days, God was never just working with Israel. He certainly was working with Israel and saying, You're going to be a blessing, but you're going to be a blessing not just to one another or to your little tribe, but to the whole world. They loved the sermon that made them the insiders who God loved and was blessing. But Jesus reminds them of two quick stories and they wanna throw them off the cliff. The first is the widow of Zarephath and that was Elijah the prophet in a time of absolute famine when things were ridiculously hard in Israel. God sent him from the brook at Carith Ravine or however you say it to this widow in Zarephath. And you know what she is? A Gentile, a poor Gentile on the edge of anyone's concern anywhere. And she is who keeps the prophet alive with this flour that doesn't run dry and this oil that doesn't run out. And she provides, a, You can go back, you can read it in 1 Kings 17. The widow in the time of famine, this Gentile woman keeps Elijah alive. Then Elisha and Naaman. Now, kids, I heard a preacher one time say, to be good at this job, you have to say the same thing over and over again for like 30 years and not get tired of it. That's a challenge except that God's word is living and active and renews and the spirit is here so it's not just total on willpower but kids have no problem with that. My son, this is the Jesus Storybook Bible and my son wanted to read the story of Naaman, the dude who's basically because he looks sick in the story, in the picture, he wanted to read the story about 1,000 times. Every time I pick it up I'm like, can we read a Jesus one? And he's like, Naaman again, give me the sick guy. I just wanna show you the picture. We're flipping through every time he's like, I get to pick. And I'm like, I'm the dad. He's like, I don't care, I pick. And Naaman, this is Naaman, okay, poor guy. He's very sick, he has leprosy. And then, by the end of the story, Naaman is totally better, okay? He gets in a stinky river seven times. Champ, my son, yes, I have a son named Champ, loves this story, I had to prove it to you guys. Second um, Kings 5, what's going on is that a woman who has been cap, uh, captured in an enemy raid by name and into Israel, he brings this girl back as a slave and she's serving in his house. He gets leprosy. She says, hey, there's a prophet in Israel that can heal you. And, and he's like, what? And so he goes to the king of Israel to be healed. And the king's like, I can't do this. Are you trying to start a war with me? Stop this nonsense. And then the prophet hears that he's come. He's like, send him to my house. Naaman gets very upset because Elisha doesn't even come outside. He's just like, go to the river. This is how it happens in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's like, I'm a warrior. I should not go to the river. Come and heal me. He's like, go to the river seven times. And he has to go to the river. And he dunks in it seven times and he's healed. And basically... In both stories, God's provision and God's healing, God's ministry, God's kindness, though tremendously humbling for the prophet and the mighty warrior, comes through the most unexpected Gentile, not Israel, means. And when Jesus expounds on this sermon, he's he's saying, hey, you're not the insiders who are the only ones who are gonna be blessed. You're literally there to be blessed, to pour through to other people. Don't be the dead sea that everything flows into and evaporates and it dies. Be be, Be the Jordan River that is flowing in life, the Sea of Galilee that has an outlet, a spring, and living water can flow through you to others. And they're frustrated because they're so desperate but they only want the blessing for themselves to fix their lives, they can't handle it. They are not poor in spirit and they wanna throw them off a cliff. Throw them off a cliff, throw them off a cliff, throw them off a cliff. I read this over and over again. I didn't catch it and a commentator mentioned. In the temptation, remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, one of the temptations the enemy gives him is, hey, throw yourself down off this cliff. And the angels will protect you because you're the chosen one and test God and let everyone be amazed at how you're protected. And he doesn't do it. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He resists the temptation. And then just a little bit later in the same chapter, he's about to get thrown off a cliff. And God does protect him and provide for him and showing us over and over again, that's the way sin works. Get this thing that you really do need, but get it your own way. Get it out of your own resources. And he doesn't do it. (laughs) And yet here, he's gonna be thrown off a cliff and God protects and provides for him because God will always protect and provide for him if you will receive the invitation of his relationship. The people's reaction is a challenge to us because we know the gospel of Jesus is at work in us when we begin to care about those God cares about. And hint, it's not just those who are like us. It includes and even prioritizes the poor. Jesus love. They loved it as Jesus sharpened the arrow throughout the sermon. Right? He sharpens the arrow; it looks beautiful. They're like, "You're an amazing arrow maker. You made the arrow; it's so sharp." And then he fires it into their hearts, and they flip out. We love to hear the ideas, but here's our invitation: Will you hear the gospel? Will you know the gospel is a person? Will you be united to Christ? Will you be embraced by Jesus who has come to embrace you? Will you join us in loving the poor? And that means loving those who are not who are not like you. We have to commit to this together. But then also the way we do that is we become the poor. Even if we have Bank accounts that have enough, we become the poor in spirit who daily confess before God that what we need most is found in Him. We open our hands and say, Come, Holy Spirit, without you were nothing, without you were lost, without you were sunk. And His life flows into our life. The good news is proclaimed to the poor, and we are becoming the poor. And then we're not off the hook of taking up the interest of those who are actually materially poor around us. It is our calling hear the gospel, be united to Christ, love the poor, become the poor. That is all of our time. Let me pray. God, I just ask very simply in the name of Jesus that you would take what's been said and you would communicate to each person's heart and mind by your spirit right now. What are the things that each person needs to hear? What are the things that they need to respond to? What are the things that we need to do to believe, to trust, to receive? I pray you would help us to be poor in spirit, to have open ears and an open heart to you right now. The good news is that your kingdom is broken in. Your life, death, and resurrection means salvation and freedom. We can be united to you. I pray you would lead us now as we worship, as we come to the table. In Jesus' name. Amen.